Picture this, if you will. You're working in a local emergency department when your triage nurse calls you over to examine a patient that he's concerned about. You see a 77-year-old male with a history of hypertension and tobacco use who presents to the emergency department with acute onset of epigastric pain shortly prior to arrival. It's like the time I had a kidney stone, he gasps. But it's different. I don't know. I can't think straight. The patient appears gray and diaphoretic, and you understand why your triage nurse was concerned. He reports tachycardia to 125 beats per minute and a blood pressure of 90 over 60 millimeters mercury. He then hands you an EKG that he's already performed before you even arrived. The way he's sweating, I I thought it might be a STEMI, he says, peering at the EKG. But neither you nor he spot ST elevations. You examine the patient more closely and find that though he's guarding upon palpation of the abdomen, you can still feel a strange pulsing, throbbing sensation when you press deeply. Get an IV in him as soon as you can, you say. I'm going to grab the ultrasound. What do you expect to find on your point-of-care ultrasound examination? And welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from cardiology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this section, you'll be able to 1. Define aortic aneurysm and differentiate between true and false aneurysms. 2. Describe the clinical presentation of an aortic aneurysm. 3. Explain the pathophysiology of how aortic aneurysms form and how complications occur. 4. Describe the diagnosis of a patient with an aortic aneurysm. And 5. Outline the management of patients with aortic aneurysms. Part 1. What is an aortic aneurysm? An aneurysm is a localized pathologic dilation of a blood vessel. Aneurysms arise in arteries. They're elastic vessels that have to tolerate about 80 high-pressure pulses of blood from the heart every minute, and at some point, their structural integrity can start to break down. And nowhere are these pressurized pulses felt more strongly than in the body's most proximal artery, the aorta. Now, the aorta is the body's largest blood vessel, coursing from its origin in the heart to where it divides in the abdomen to reach the pelvis and legs. And it's built more strongly than most other arteries, but given the massive flow and unmitigated pressure it experiences, it's no wonder the aorta is a common area for aneurysms. The weakened, dilated walls of an aneurysm can collect pockets of thrombus that embolize, causing ischemia, especially in the lower extremities. But the most consequential complication, as the growth of the aneurysm accelerates, is rupture of the weakened walls of the aneurysm. And given the normal flow rate of an aorta, Rupture can be catastrophic. Only about 10 to 25% of patients who present to a hospital with a ruptured aneurysm actually survive emergency repair, given the rapid hemorrhagic shock that follows. Now to review. The walls of blood vessels have three layers. The tunica intima near the lumen, the tunica media, which in arteries contains the smooth muscle and elastic tissue, and the tunica adventitia, which surrounds the artery. A true aneurysm involves expansion of the vessel lumen and all three layers of the artery without any defect in the vessel wall. They can be saccular, which bulge out on only one side of the vessel to form a sort of spherical pulsing knob, or fusiform, which bulge out on all sides and kind of make the aorta look like a snake that swallowed a rat that was just a little too big for it. Now, false aneurysm, or pseudoaneurysm, 
forms in a manner that's more similar to a dissection than a true aneurysm. The tunica intima is injured, usually due to procedures like cardiac catheterization that puncture the artery. The intima is a bit delicate, and the high pressure of arterial flow allows blood to dissect into the hole in the endothelium. If the blood spreads proximally and distally, tearing the intima away from the media, well, that's called a dissection. But if blood escapes focally and is contained by the dense connective tissue of the adventitia, it becomes a pseudoaneurysm. These don't tend to spread, and therefore don't carry the same risks that dissection does. But just like a true aneurysm, the arterial pressure can cause them to grow until they become incredibly fragile and eventually rupture, at which point they can cause massive bleeding. So to review, what is the difference between a true and a false aneurysm? A true aneurysm is a pathological focal dilation involving all three layers of the blood vessel, whereas a false aneurysm is a hole spanning all three layers of the blood vessel forming a localized hematoma. But aortic aneurysms are most typically true aneurysms. Aortic aneurysms are described based on their location. Thoracic aortic aneurysms above the diaphragm and abdominal aortic aneurysms, or AAAs, below the diaphragm. And functionally speaking, this is a much more important distinction for aortic aneurysms. As we'll discuss, this seemingly minor distinction in where the aneurysm is located affects nearly everything, from the risk factors, to the symptoms, to the complications they cause, to their management, both medical and surgical. Part 2. How do patients with aortic aneurysms present? An aortic aneurysm is usually asymptomatic until a major life-threatening complication, like aortic rupture or, less commonly, a dissection, occurs. Most aneurysms are discovered incidentally on imaging, like a CT scan or an MRI, which is done for unrelated reasons, or less often, found on a routine physical examination as a pulsatile midline abdominal mass. If symptoms are present, though, they're usually nonspecific, most commonly chest, abdominal, or back pain, depending on the location of the aneurysm. But the presence of pain associated with an aortic aneurysm is definitely not a good sign. It usually means the aneurysm is expanding rapidly enough to where the deformation of tissues is causing pain. And both thoracic and abdominal aortic aneurysms tend to accumulate thrombus, which can embolize distally and lead to ischemia. Both commonly lead to limb ischemia, which can be as minor as purpura or sudden gangrene of a toe, for example or as severe as occlusion of the entire femoral artery, depending on the size of the embolus and the presence of existing stenosis in the arteries of the leg. Very large thoracic aortic aneurysms, or TAAs, can cause symptoms due to mass effect on intrathoracic structures. Compression of the coronary arteries can lead to chest pain, and distortion of the annular ring of the aortic valve can lead to aortic regurgitation and even heart failure. Compression of the airways can cause wheezing and dyspnea, Compression of the recurrent laryngeal nerve can cause hoarseness, and compression of the esophagus can cause dysphagia. Abdominal aortic aneurysms don't tend to cause significant symptoms due to their mass effect, though uncommonly, chronic progressive mesenteric ischemia can result from progressively impaired blood flow to the mesenteric vessels. Now, the worst-case scenario is if the patient presents with rupture. If the rupture is not contained by the surrounding tissues, the patient will almost certainly die from blood loss before they even reach the hospital. If the rupture is contained, the continued arterial pressure likely means that it will not be contained for long, and you may have only have moments to make the diagnosis before the hemorrhage progresses into another body compartment and the patient goes into hemorrhagic shock. 
The typical presentation in this case is sudden severe pain that is commonly misdiagnosed as ureteral colic from a kidney stone, given the similar sudden onset severe intensity, and the tendency of AAAs to rupture first towards the retroperitoneum. Obviously, the pain will depend a lot on where the aneurysm is located and in which direction it ruptures, but the overlap in presentation with other disease processes means you have to have a high index of suspicion in patients at risk for aortic aneurysms. Quick knowledge check before we move on. What is the usual presentation of aortic aneurysms? Aortic aneurysms are usually asymptomatic or present with nonspecific pain in the chest, abdomen, or back until the occurrence of a major life-threatening complication, such as an aortic rupture or dissection. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of aortic aneurysms? The pathophysiology of aortic aneurysms depends on where they develop. The most common type of aortic aneurysms arise distal to the ligamentum arteriosum and are often associated with atherosclerosis. This includes all abdominal aortic aneurysms, as well as aneurysms in the descending thoracic aorta. But since most TAAs are in the ascending aorta, I'm just going to refer to atherosclerosis-associated aneurysms as AAAs. Just remember that for the purposes of pathophysiology, the pathogenesis of the relatively uncommon descending TAAs shares a lot in common with AAAs. Thoracic aortic aneurysms arising proximal to the ligamentum arteriosum, namely in the arch and ascending aorta, are generally not associated with atherosclerosis. Instead, they're caused by processes that lead to degeneration of the walls of the aorta. This is probably because of the different embryologic origins of the aortic wall smooth muscle. The smooth muscle in the ascending aorta and aortic arch originate from neural crest ectoderm, whereas the smooth muscle of the descending aorta originates from the mesoderm. And as it turns out, mesoderm-derived cells are much more commonly linked to the later development of atherosclerosis. Since atherosclerosis-associated aortic aneurysms are most common, let's dive a little bit more deeply into those. Now, abdominal aortic aneurysms are not only the most common type of aortic aneurysm, they're the most common true aneurysm anywhere in the body. They typically arise in the infrarenal aorta, which is the part of the aorta between the renal arteries and the aortic bifurcation. Now, even though these aortic aneurysms are considered atherosclerosis-associated, and a lot of the risk factors for both aneurysms and atherosclerosis are similar, the two processes are not the same. Both aneurysmal and atherosclerotic degeneration of the arteries tend to occur in older men with hypertension. Both aneurysmal and atherosclerotic degeneration occur because of chronic inflammatory changes. But atherosclerosis tends to occur when inflammation of the innermost tunica intima allows the development of subintimal plaque. In contrast, aneurysmal degeneration involves transmural inflammation, where the elastic fibers of the tunica media break down, weakening the structural integrity of the artery and causing it to dilate like an old elastic band that's been stretched one too many times. This is supported by a slight difference in risk factors as well. Smoking is the most important risk factor in the development of AAAs, second to none, whereas smoking is simply one of many risk factors implicated in atherogenesis. Maybe most surprisingly, though, diabetes mellitus is a very well-known risk factor for atherosclerosis, but actually decreases the likelihood of developing AAAs. Now let's talk about thoracic aortic aneurysms. Most of these occur quite proximally in the ascending aorta, 
And their development isn't associated with atherosclerosis, but rather degeneration of the aorta's tunica media, a process known as cystic medial degeneration. This process is characterized by a loss of vascular smooth muscle in the tunica media, fragmentation of the elastic fibers, and the accumulation of extracellular matrix in cyst-like spaces that combine to weaken the aortic wall. And given the high biomechanical forces within the vessel, this weakening is the perfect recipe for aneurysm formation. The risk of aneurysm formation and rupture involves multiple risk factors, most importantly, severe uncontrolled chronic hypertension. Like with AAAs, aging is a risk factor as well for thoracic aortic aneurysms. But in contrast to AAAs, there are a number of connective tissue disorders that also contribute to cystic medial degeneration. Congenital problems like Marfan syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and bicuspid aortic valves, but also chronic infections like syphilitic aortitis and tuberculosis. Descending TAAs, like I mentioned, usually result from atherosclerotic disease, much like AAAs, but in rare cases they can be the target of systemic vasculitides like Takayasu and giant cell arteritis. Now let's talk about complications. From most to least severe, the complications of aortic aneurysms include compression of adjacent structures, thromboembolism, and finally, aortic rupture or dissection. Like I mentioned earlier, a very large aortic aneurysm can mechanically compress nearby structures, which in severe or acutely expanding cases can interfere with their function. Remind me again, what are three structures that can be compressed by TAAs? TAAs can compress the coronary arteries, trachea, esophagus, and the left recurrent laryngeal nerve, leading to chest pain, wheezing, dysphagia, and hoarseness, respectively. TAAs that involve the aortic root can actually distort the aortic valve leaflets, causing acute aortic regurgitation and valvular heart failure. AAAs are less likely to exert compressive effects, but in severe cases can compress the mesenteric arteries, causing a form of slow, progressive abdominal pain with digestion, known as abdominal angina. And both types of aneurysms can expand towards the spine, causing erosion of the vertebral bodies, leading to back pain. Aortic aneurysms are prone to the collection of thrombus because of the turbulent flow that occurs along the bulging walls. Eventually, a thrombus may break off and embolize to occlude a downstream vessel, causing ischemia to its supplied tissues. But the most feared complications of an aortic aneurysm are aortic rupture and dissection, both of which are generally extremely painful and can be rapidly fatal. As aortic aneurysms gradually expand over the years, the walls continuously lose their structural integrity and get progressively weaker. Eventually, the walls of the aneurysmal sac may succumb to the high pressures of arterial circulation, leading to rupture. This generally leads to massive internal bleeding, and though it may be briefly contained by the surrounding connective tissue, the forces behind aortic blood flow frequently mean that the hematoma will eventually expand, causing rapid and lethal exsanguination. An aortic dissection, which, remember, involves progressive separation of layers of the aortic wall, doesn't lead to death in quite such an obvious way. But the expanding hematoma between the layers of the aortic wall can obstruct flow, especially as the dissection spreads. It can then completely occlude side branches, or even an entire limb, leading to signs and symptoms of mesenteric or lower limb ischemia. Finally, while a dissection is less likely to rupture than an aneurysm, dissection flaps can spread proximally 
all the way to the heart and tend to rupture directly into the pericardial sac. And that is bad news bears, because hemopericardium can lead abruptly to obstructive shock secondary to cardiac tamponade, something that isn't temporized quite so easily with something like a blood transfusion. Alright, let's review before we move on. What are the most important risk factors for the development of thoracic and abdominal aortic aneurysms, respectively? Hypertension is the most important risk factor for the development of TAAs, and smoking is the most important risk factor for the development of AAAs. Part 4. How do we diagnose aortic aneurysms? Patients with aortic aneurysms can be asymptomatic, have nonspecific pain or discomfort, or in severe cases, present with the specific symptoms of mass effect of the aneurysm, thromboembolism, or with aortic emergencies of rupture or dissection. While it's difficult to justify an extensive workup for an aortic aneurysm for just nonspecific symptoms, that decision has to be made in the context of a patient's risk factors. Furthermore, it's increasingly recognized that prevention has the potential to do much more good for a patient than trying to save their life once something catastrophic has happened. Many guidelines now recommend screening asymptomatic high-risk patients for AAAs, even in the absence of symptoms or physical examination findings. Screening is now recommended in patients older than age 65 years who have either smoked tobacco in their lifetimes or have first-degree relatives who have either died of a AAA or required AAA repair. We'll go over specific testing modalities later. In patients with nonspecific symptoms and risk factors for either AAA or TAA, the physical exam can help guide the clinician on determining the workup required. TAA near the aortic root may cause the characteristic murmur of aortic regurgitation. With AAAs, a pulsatile abdominal mass may be felt on deep palpation. On auscultation, a bruit can sometimes be heard. Keep in mind, though, the aorta is basically the most posterior structure in the abdomen, and given your patient's body habitus, this may be more or less difficult. To diagnose aortic aneurysms with any reasonable degree of sensitivity, though, you're going to need diagnostic imaging studies. And the two that are commonly used are ultrasound for AAAs and CT angiography, which is the gold standard for all types of aortic aneurysms. An abdominal ultrasound can quickly and inexpensively detect an abnormally enlarged aorta, and it is the preferred imaging modality for screening at-risk patients who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. Given the high cost and radiation contrast load of CT angiography, ultrasound is typically used in patients with a relatively low pretest probability of aortic aneurysms. It's also a worthwhile point-of-care test in the emergency department for a patient who presents an extremis that may need further resuscitation before they're stable enough for a CT scan. An ultrasound will reliably reveal a black tubular structure immediately anterior to the spine that appears black or filled with fluid on standard ultrasound visualization. When Doppler imaging is used, the fluid will be revealed as pulsatile, which helps distinguish it from the adjacent inferior vena cava. If the lumen is partially filled with thrombus, that may also be seen as a relatively hyperechoic density compared to the blood that normally fills the lumen, or as an abnormal lack of pulsatility on Doppler imaging. The diameter of the aorta can then be measured in multiple levels. Greater than 3 centimeters is considered aneurysmal, but only aneurysms greater than 5.5 centimeters are considered to be at substantial risk of rupture warranting intervention. When patients have a higher pretest probability of an aortic aneurysm, whether based on physical exam or more specific symptoms, 
CT angiography is the test of choice. Intravenous contrast is injected under high pressure into the venous circulation, and the radiology technician times the CT scanner to obtain very thin slice images of the entire aorta when the contrast has moved into the arterial circulation. When the lumen lights up with contrast, you can not only measure aortic dilation, but also thrombus, dissections, and hemorrhage visible as active leakage of contrast from the vessel or as abnormal fluid collections around the aorta. Thoracic aortic aneurysms are sometimes first suspected based on a chest x-ray that's performed broadly to work up nonspecific chest pain and may show mediastinal widening, aortic knob enlargement, and tracheal displacement. But it's important to recognize that x-rays are by no means definitive. If a patient has suspicious findings on the chest x-ray, you have to follow those findings up with more definitive studies. So just to review, what is the gold standard imaging study for aortic aneurysms? And the answer is CT angiography. Part 5. How do we manage aortic aneurysms? The management of aortic aneurysms largely revolves around monitoring and managing the risk of rupture, and regularly evaluating this risk against the benefit of surgical intervention. An asymptomatic patient with a small aneurysm can be managed conservatively by managing medical risk factors like blood pressure and smoking cessation. If a patient is identified as having a small aneurysm, they do need close observation with serial imaging. Now, the specific point at which surgical intervention is required for specific patients varies somewhat based on the location of the aneurysm, the predisposing conditions that led to the aneurysm, and the level of surgical risk. But in general, if an aortic aneurysm is larger than 5.5 centimeters or is rapidly expanding, the benefits of surgical repair typically outweigh the risks. Surgical intervention is also indicated for symptomatic thoracic aortic aneurysms, and all aneurysms that are already ruptured require immediate operative intervention if there's any reasonable chance that the patient will survive the procedure. Now, there's two main surgical approaches to aortic repair, open and endovascular. Open repair is the traditional approach and involves exposure of the aorta by either a vascular or a cardiothoracic surgeon, depending on the location of the aneurysm. A major advantage to open repair is the ability to rapidly establish proximal control over a hemorrhaging aorta and create a secure sutured seal between the aorta and the graft that will replace the diseased portion of the aorta without blocking vessels that branch from the aneurysm, and this can be done no matter what the patient's anatomy. But many aortic aneurysms are now treated using endovascular techniques, which resemble cardiac catheterization in a lot of ways. The endovascular approach involves insertion of a collapsed stent graft through a catheter in the femoral artery, then expanding it to seal off the aneurysm sac, both proximal and distal to the aneurysm. Increasingly, this can be done in the emergent setting, even for ruptured aneurysms, by using a balloon at the end of the catheter to occlude the aorta proximal to the site of hemorrhage. The benefits of this more minimally invasive strategy are obvious. Faster recovery time, lower operative complications, etc. The main challenges of this technique involve the availability of grafts that suit the specific location of each patient's aneurysms and the vessels that branch off the diseased portion of the aorta. Alright, final knowledge check gang. What are the two main surgical approaches for the treatment of an aortic aneurysm? Aortic aneurysms can either be repaired by the conventional open approach, 
or the endovascular approach. And that's a wrap. Let's review to see what you remember about aortic aneurysms. First, can you define aortic aneurysm and explain the main complication that dictates how they're managed? An aortic aneurysm is the pathological dilation of the aorta, either above or below the diaphragm. While an aneurysm can present with nonspecific chest, back, or abdominal pain, symptoms of mass effect, or even distal thromboembolic disease, the main complication of a concern that drives medical decision-making is the risk of aneurysm rupture, as this can lead to massive hemorrhage with an extremely high fatality rate. Second, can you distinguish between the major risk factors that lead to the development of thoracic versus abdominal aortic aneurysms? Thoracic aortic aneurysms, specifically ones in the ascending aorta and the aortic arch, are caused by cystic medial degeneration, which is primarily associated with hypertension. Abdominal aortic aneurysms and aortic aneurysms in the descending thorax are caused by chronic transmural inflammation, which is primarily associated with smoking and other atherosclerotic risk factors. Third, can you name two diagnostic modalities most commonly used to diagnose and monitor aortic aneurysms? Ultrasound is used to screen patients for AAAs who are either asymptomatic with risk factors or minimally symptomatic. CT angiography of the entire aorta is the gold standard diagnostic modality for all types of aortic aneurysm. Finally, can you outline the two main management strategies for aortic aneurysms? Small aortic aneurysms are managed conservatively with risk factor reduction and observation, usually with serial imaging to monitor for growth rate. But surgical repair is the definitive treatment of aortic aneurysms and is indicated in stable patients when the aneurysm is large enough, usually greater than 5.5 centimeters. Rupturing or dissecting aortic aneurysms require immediate surgical intervention. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the intro. A 77-year-old male presents to the emergency department with severe epigastric pain, appears gray and diaphoretic, and has guarding and pulsatility upon abdominal exam. What information do you hope to obtain with a point-of-care ultrasound, and how will the answer affect your management? You scan the patient's abdomen, and though the patient's obese body habitus and bowel gas limit your exam, it's almost impossible to miss the cavernous, fluid-filled structure immediately anterior to the spine. The aorta measures an enormous 7 centimeters, and more concerningly, you notice hints of dark fluid surrounding the aorta on both sides. You instruct your team to place another large bore IV and order uncross-matched blood from the blood bank in anticipation that the patient's aortic hemorrhage could cause rapid decompensation. After ordering a CT angiogram, you immediately call the vascular surgeon and tell her that you suspect a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. She isn't thrilled to hear that the CT hasn't been performed yet, but she comes to evaluate the patient and follows him to the CT scanner to see the images as they're generated. You're right, she says grimly when she comes back. Good thing you didn't wait for the radiologist to call it. He'll be lucky if he makes it through this, but I'll get an operating room ready right now. 
Hopefully, recognizing it early buys him the time he needs to survive the operation. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full Bricks experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends, 